how would we be talking about Fields' draft stock had he stayed at Georgia? Oof. No, that's a good one. I, I think people would feel a lot more comfortable drafting him. Like, he would not be getting the same concerns. Because if you play again, I think you touched and hit the nail on the head there. If you play poorly against an SEC defense. You play poorly against Alabama. Hey, you play poorly against Alabama's defense. Uh, you know, like, you can excuse that away. So, I do think it'd be a vastly different conversation, but you just go back and look at some of the quarterbacks that went number one overall. Like Jared Goff, you really think Jared Goff's a better prospect for what he did at Cal than Justin Fields? You know, some of these guys that have gone number one overall in the past, like even Jameis Winston, his last season, he didn't have issues at Florida State his last year. He had some god-awful games there. So it really does blow my mind that the conversation's gotten to this point. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, as I often do, I was scrolling through Twitter the other day and I came across something that I opened up before I could even finish reading the tweet. It was from The Athletic's Chris Vanini and it said, college football officials really want to crack down on faking injuries to slow offenses. They might finally have the answer. I know. Funny, right? Listen, if the NCAA is cracking down on something, I can guarantee you it's not a real problem. <laughs> well, hold the phone. Hold the phone. That's that's when I clicked because I'm like, oh, yes, that would be absolutely incredible if that happened. There are things that I love in this sport. Tailgating, wheel routes, most mascots that are live and in person except that dumb steer Bevo. <laughs> I also love the up-tempo offense. Shout out to Gus Melzon, Chip Kelly. What do I hate? Besides coaches who act like they're above the law, I hate faking injuries. So naturally, Chris's story, it, it piqued my interest. And for what it's worth, it's really well reported. He got quotes from Stanford coach David Shaw, who chairs the rules committee. He talked to TCU's Gary Patterson, SMU's Sonny Dykes, Mike Defee, aka Jacked Ref, and a few others. Among that group of a few others was Steve Shaw, who used to be the SEC coordinator of officials, but he actually transitioned to the role of NCAA, national coordinator of officials, whatever. I remember at this time last year, something that Shaw said. Our expectation is that in, 20, in the 2020 season, feigning injuries as an issue in our game will go away. Shaw's big plan was to warn the coaches. Then, if they didn't change, he's really going to step in and do his job. I don't have kids but I'm gonna assume that's like when your five-year-old is coloring on your walls, and instead of saying, stop that right now or you're grounded, the parents say, stop that right now, and then if you do it again, I'm gonna to have to think of a way to punish you. You're never gonna believe this, but wait for it. It didn't work. Teams still faked injuries last year, and guess what? They didn't get in trouble. It didn't matter if it was a primetime game like the Orange Bowl, like when UNC's Tamari Fox blatantly looked to the sideline and went down when AM was driving, and basically the entire UNC defense had its hands on its hips. Tennessee's Tyler Barron did it in a game last year against Auburn when the Vols were totally scrambling against Auburn's up-tempo offense. Again, shout out Gus Malzahn. The worst thing about that one, they showed Barron on the bench shortly after that, and he's like, did I sell it? I'm pretty sure that Steve Shaw referenced that exact play like indirectly in the athletic story, or maybe it wasn't. It's hard to know because there are so many of these instances. Steve Shaw apparently put together this montage of obvious fake injuries, and David Shaw called it embarrassing. You know what's more embarrassing? The fact that the NCAA continues to treat this like it's some impossible situation instead of actually changing it because it impacts the game. 
Other leagues have figured out a way to deter things like flopping. You know, the NBA, they have fines. They, they, they punish that. They cracked down on that years ago. College basketball has flopping warnings, which I actually saw called in an NCAA tournament game. They still haven't figured out the whole, like, de-incentivizing, charging instead of playing actual defense, though. Faking injuries in college football is like that. It's a strategic move to say, we don't have an answer for this offense. Let's buy ourselves an out. I'd venture to say that among all things in college football, the take that faking injuries sucks might be the single most unanimous thing that we can all agree on. It's even more unanimous than fixed targeting. It is a problem. So what do I always say? Don't present a problem without providing a solution. Both Steve and David Shaw have clearly acknowledged that this is a problem. But as for their solution, that appears to be TBD. The athletic story said, Shaw says there's going to be a way for opponents to appeal this. The problem is, according to Steve Shaw, we're still working through the enforcement component of this. The story outlines how there isn't a governing body that can officially rule on this, on this punishment because read between the lines and guess what? The NCAA doesn't have any power. This would take conference commissioners getting on board and agreeing on some way to enforce this. Never mind the fact that when Lane Kiffin blasts the officiating, they have a quick way of making sure that he gets fined $25,000. But when it comes to actually coming up with a punishment for something that legitimately hurts the sport, they can't settle on anything. At the same time, I'll admit that you actually can't put this on the refs during the game. There are so many things that they have to watch throughout a football game, and it's a bit utopic to think that refs are automatically gonna be able to spot every single fake injury. But with so many available camera angles, you can 100% get to the bottom of this. And you can do so without violating some HIPAA law because I know that's what some people are going to say. Well, you don't know if the player is actually hurt. Or what if it's just cramping? You know there's actually a protocol for cramping. Like if the dude gets to the sidelines and starts shotgunning mustard packets and pickle juice, we should probably be able to say, oh yeah, that's cramping. All of this is going to have to be determined post-game. But if you come up with the right punishment, you can deter it. Again, that's TBD. They've had like this thing where they tried it out where they suspended a coach in the past. They did it in the Pac-12. Tosh Lapoy, actually, former Alabama assistant, he got suspended when he was the defensive line coach at Cal because he blatantly advised a player to take a dive during a game against Chip Kelly's Oregon team back in 2010. But that was the school who suspended him because it was just so blatantly obvious, even though they tried to deny it, didn't really work. This would take buying in from the conferences. It would also take coaches not treating this like it's so taboo. Remember a couple months ago when I asked Sam Pittman about that? I asked him about calling out Mizzou for faking injuries and he quickly corrected me and was like, I didn't call them out. All right, sure. Pittman then acknowledged that it's a problem that needed fixing. Coaches might react in the heat of the moment to this, but it's almost like there's still this don't rock the boat deal with, with this whole thing. By calling someone out for faking something in football, it's like you're attacking another program's manhood or something. I don't know why it's that way, but it is. And it's probably because they don't want to be a hypocrite if and when their team turns around and does the exact same thing. Remember, nothing is stopping them yet. So back to the original reason why I clicked on the story. They might finally have the answer. I read the entire story and I'm like the entire time, I'm doing the, the you, know, you know the gif, Will, the, the Jack Nicholson gif where he's got the crazed look in his eyes, he's nodding his head. Yeah. And then I got to the end. It's a quote from Steve Shaw. He said, I would say in a lighthearted way, we're, all sti we're still all ears. If you're sitting at home tonight eating dinner and something pops into your head about a creative solution for this, 
we're definitely all ears. <sighs> Fine, Steve, I'll do your job for you. Last year when you made that horse crap comment about warning coaches, I gave you free advice and a year later you're asking Americans to stop eating their dinner so they can do your job for you. I'm not putting that on the American people. They've been through enough the last year. I'll put it on myself. So here we go. First of all, scrap the one play rule. That sucks. Make it a two play rule if a, or a two minute rule if a guy goes down. Start the clock that it, okay, so you're saying like if a player goes down at the 325 mark of a game, then he's not allowed to come back in until there's 125 left. In today's game, you could lose a player for an entire series with that if you follow the two minute rule. Or you can just follow Mike Gundy's idea of an injured player cannot return until there's a change of possession. If he returns early, it's a 15 minute unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. And don't tell me that we can track this in hockey, but we can't track this in football. There's also got to be a one game suspension for the coach who promotes the faking of the injury. There's more than enough video to pinpoint this. These things are not hard with the All-22s. When I was in high school, and this isn't related to the All-22s, when I was in high school, I took a blatant shot to the head when I was on kickoff coverage team and I was trying to make a tackle. And I remember just like barely being able to stand. And the coaches were like, go down, go down. So I did. That, in my opinion, was totally fine. Sure, they wanted me to go down to sell the 15-yard penalty for helmet-to-helmet contact, which I found out after the game was called on that play, no big deal. But watch the film and you'd see, oh yeah, that guy, he took a shot to the head. He was carted off the field with a concussion. Oh, he also didn't practice the entire week. He didn't play the next game. You don't need a punishment there for those coaches. You also, and this is going to be unpopular. People are going to hate this. You have to put it back on the players too with a form of a one-game suspension. Maybe at least one half. If you can prove in the review process which you say is now in place with the coordinator of officials, there is a review process, they acknowledge that, which is apparently gonna be part of the solution, then you should be able to suspend a player a half or a game, whatever it needs to be. What does that do? If their defensive line coach asks them to take a dive, it at least puts the thought in the back of their mind of, wait a minute, screw that. Why am I gonna potentially risk sitting out for a half for a game if somebody's telling me to do that? When you announce that a player is suspended, here's what you need to do. You need to have a Twitter account that shows the exact clips that were used to determine it. Full transparency. And I'm not talking about that crap SEC officiating account that basically looks at one call a week to show why an official properly did his or her job. Those rules have transparency and they have accountability. Do they fix everything? Probably not. But the goal is to take away the egregious fakes. That's a better plan than anything Shaw has, and I didn't, need to, I didn't even need to sit down at dinner to be able to come up with it. But hey, he's all ears. Not that the NCAA checks its Twitter mentions, but if you've got a better idea, they're at NCAA football on Twitter. Uh, they've tweeted four times in the last month, so pretty, pretty active account, I think we can say. Maybe write Steve Shaw and the NCAA a strongly worded letter if you come up with a better idea for punishing fake injuries tonight when you're sitting down at dinner and you wanna pause Netflix for a minute. Whatever the case, I bet that'll be a more effective approach than warning teams that you might one day have to consider a way to actually address something that's becoming more and more prevalent in the last decade. The funny thing about this is David Shaw chairing this thing because, I mean, this dude runs a program that, like, his athletes probably have 4.0s. So, like, him trying to be the adult in the room here for all these programs that are trying to win, and he's also, like, has one of the slowest-paced offenses ever. 
So, like, this dude's sitting there and being like, all right, guys, I have the easy answer here. It's like, buddy, I'm sure your guys would listen to you if you said this, but that doesn't work for the rest of college football. No one's listening to David Shaw. Like, they don't care, bro. And then, like, secondly, it's very funny because you make a good point about telling, like, you know, when a guy's actually hurt. But you know, like, college coaches are just going to be having people OD on pickle juice on the sidelines. Like, they're just going to be like, oh, yeah, no, like, whatever we put in there, they'll find a way. So this is like the speeders versus uh, cops situation. Is like, I want to see the creative ways that, like, college coaches find a way to get around whatever's going on. This is going to be incredible. If you do that, though, and if you do want to have your guy chugging pickle juice on the sideline <laughs> he's still got to be out for two minutes yep that's significant two minutes is more than just a play and then he gets to come back in like dudes come out and rotate in the way that that people the way that coaches rotate pass rushers now like that's that's a very common thing he could have just been coming out anyways and they probably when this happens a lot of the time it's because they can't even get the right substitution in so if you actually make the player sit out for two minutes two full minutes and then you can still appeal it afterwards it takes the opponent coach saying we are going to appeal this injury and if you want to point to the you know the chucking of the pickle juice or, or whatever the case and if that's what's able to take some of this away and take some of the blame all right fine at least that dude is still sitting out for two minutes and it's not just a blatant loophole in the entire deal it's ridiculous though and it's actually going to take it's going to take commissioners sitting down and realizing that this is not just something that that happens once a month or something like that this happens all the time there's some sort of stat in there about how players who come out of the game are out for, like for via injury are out for at least six plays like 81% of players who come out via injury are at least out for six plays or something like that but I, I just think that you you can't sit there and continue to do nothing. You yep. can't sit there and keep saying we're going to figure out a way to punish this. You better not do it. It didn't work. Didn't work, man. Mm-hmm. Didn't work. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. All right, I've talked about this so many times. The Saturday Football Newsletter, if you're not subscribed to it yet, why not? All you got to do, you go into your browser, you type saturday.football, and you get all of the best headlines sent to you via email that our great Adam Spencer puts together, and it's such a great resource to become an informed college football fan. You don't like social media? Hey, all you got to have is an email account. Everybody's got an email account. Even my grandpa used to have a Hotmail account. All right, everybody has an email account. Everybody has the resources to become a more informed college sports fan. It's not just college football that we have on there. We have great college basketball stuff as well, but it is such a great resource and I cannot recommend it enough. So all you gotta do, go to your browser, saturday.football. You put in your email address. It's as simple as that. Trust me, you will not regret it. Before we talk a little draft stuff with Pro Football Focus's Mike Renner, I want to dig into some some QB tiers for the spring here. Yeah, I like doing these, and I've I've kind of teased this out a little bit, and I've tried to come up with the right way to do this. But I like doing tiers better than just like a straight ranking. And there will be a time and a place for rankings. Don't get me wrong, but I like doing these early on, and I'll probably still do like a post spring top five as well. But it's it's a mess to rank quarterbacks during the preseason, especially in a year like this. We've got ten SEC teams either with a new offensive coordinator or a new starting quarterback. The ones who have the same offensive coordinator and the same starting quarterback: Georgia, Mizzou, Mississippi State, Ole Miss. That's it. What does that mean? It means that we've got some really really fluid situations that we're talking about here. Some of these teams could go through spring and then just decide, hey, we want to go to the transfer portal. These tiers are determined by preseason situations. They aren't just 
who has the most upside. I could probably make a case that there's more upside in tier two than there is in tier one. This is just starting off again, very, very fluid. Tier one, these are returning starters with preseason Heisman buzz. Matt Corral, JT Daniels, that's it. Those are the guys who have the best chance to be all SEC guys. They'll be rocking the suits at SEC media days. They're the ones who are in ideal situations for the coaches. They present the ideal situations for their offensive coordinators. Everything just kind of feels like it should work. They're also the no excuse guys. Year two in the system for both of them, relatively normal offseason. Corral and Daniels are, they're gonna be the obvious preseason all SEC guys. My preference preseason, at least in terms of just starting out, is probably Corral. And I said that pre-Pickens injury too, so that wasn't just like, oh, all these Georgia receivers are gonna go down, I'm off of JC Daniels. Not the case at all, I'll get to more of that later. But I just love the mobility with Corral. I, I think he takes a lot of heat from you, know, you as well, the, the five interception games. I don't know though, like I, I've said it before, I love that he's still out there sort of rallying the troops when he has games like that. I think, I mean, he's had game-winning drive attempts in both of those games where he threw five and six interceptions, which does not happen very often. Um, with Daniels, I think he still needs some work in the intermediate passing game. There's room for improvement when it comes to facing pressure. You gotta remember, kid hasn't had a ton of those snaps yet, and the timing of the injury just didn't lend itself to the best possible year two development, of course, but I think we see that this year. That could just be a reps thing. He has been excellent on third down though. Teams are gonna try and make JT Daniels work underneath a lot more. They're gonna try and take away the deep ball. I know it's a crazy thought facing that Georgia offense, but that's gonna be the case this year. The potential is there. That's assuming again that Georgia's entire receiver room doesn't go down. Put those guys in bubble wrap. It's been brutal so far. I wrote in January that I think the Matt Corral, JT Daniels debate is really fun. I'm sure it's gonna go both ways. Barring a setback though, both of those guys, first, second team, all SEC to start off the year. Tier two, these are what I call the next in command guys. They're not gonna start as all SEC guys, but it obviously wouldn't surprise anyone if they finished there. By the way, I always bring up the point um, with why they won't start off all SEC with referencing Tua before 2018. Like going into that season, he's coming off second and 26, and he wasn't preseason all SEC. I know, it's a crazy thought. We had never seen him start a game, and he was still considered to be kind of in that battle with Jalen Hurts, of course. Will, any guesses on the four SEC quarterbacks who got preseason love that year? 2018, this is gonna be tough. And so there was actually a tie for third, for third team. That's why there was four. Oh man, so it's gotta be Fromm. Fromm is one of them, yes. Was Felipe one of them? Okay, so Felipe is not one of them. Hmm, okay, I'm trying to think now. If you go back, oh man, uh, was that Stidham? Stidham is one as well. Stidham okay. is one as well. I know, I know Burrow wasn't there. Uh, oh man, was, uh, was Garantano one of them? Okay, we're we're not we're, not we're, going we're getting off the yeah we're getting off the train now. We're not there. Okay, you got two. You got two out of four. Okay. Do you give up on that? You're yeah. gonna kick yourself on one of these. Uh, luck. Okay, there you go. That's Yo, that's the obvious go. one. Um, don't laugh out loud at this, but you you know where this is going. Nick Fitzgerald was the other one. I you know what I know that though because he was he was good like he was he had a solid career. I didn't know if he was still in college at that point because we haven't heard from him since. But yep, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, um, shout out to the Alliance of American Football. Was he in that or the XFL? I don't remember. He was with the St. Louis team. 
That was, no, no, that was the XFL. He was with the XFL. Anyways. Clear off your mantle, Connor. Clear off your mantle. <laughs> um, don't, don't, we don't throw Joe Moorhead under the bus here. That's not what we do. Anyways, don't expect preseason first or second team all SEC with these guys. And don't get offended by that. As I just said, Nick Fitzgerald was the preseason all SEC quarterback ahead of Tua going into 2018. These guys are in this tier because they were QB2 pretty much all of last year. They're very likely to be the starter this year. Their coaches will say it's a true quarterback battle, um, but they're probably all getting the majority of those, those you know, first team reps and all that. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the, like, give these guys a normal offseason buzz is happening with them. So this group consists of Bryce Young, KJ Jefferson, Emory Jones, Haynes King. A lot of upside with those guys. Mm -hmm. I think each one of those guys at the same time has a massive question facing them. Bryce Young, the question, how does he gel with Bill O'Brien? Bill O'Brien, in case you haven't heard, he's not Steve Sarkeesian. Steve Sarkeesian, the guy <laughs> who knew Bryce Young back in middle school, in case you haven't heard about that as well. Um, but being on the same page as the offensive coordinator is everything. Like, go back to Jalen Hurts with Brian Dable. That passing offense in 2017 did not work. Jalen Hurts regressed. It was one read to Calvin Ridley and then run. Both, however, I would argue, Jalen Hurts and Brian Dable, like, they were really good. They ended up being really good. They just weren't good fits with each other. Brian Dable was really good with Josh Allen. Jalen Hurts was really good with Lincoln Riley, of course. Young obviously did not commit to Bill O'Brien, but Bill O'Brien's going to run similar concepts that he worked with Deshaun. And remember, Deshaun Watson, like, we're not getting into any off-the-field stuff, but, like, early in his career, when he actually had help, he was really, really good, and it was darn impressive to watch what he developed into from, from the jump, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Bryce Young, a little more help than Deshaun Watson, especially uh, the last couple of years. But still, will there be that trust? Are those guys going to mesh? We'll see. K.J. Jefferson, the big question with him. How well does he fit with Kendall Bryles' system? Jefferson, as you recall, Chad Morris-era recruit. Ugh, yikes. Um, we know that Bryles wants to run tempo. That's his thing. Jefferson's 6'3", 240 pounds. He's being given the keys to that car. They're having him speak to the media. That's usually a good sign that he's going to be the guy. He's leading a lot more in the past. They're saying all the right things about him. He operates just way, way different than redshirt freshman Malik Hornsby. Hornsby's like 60 pounds lighter than Jefferson, so that's going to be one of those where side by side, they just do not look similar at all. He, though, uh, Hornsby that is, is the first quarterback recruit of the Pittman era. I wonder about Jefferson with some of the broken plays, like when he had that go-ahead touchdown against Mizzou to Mike Woods, that should have been a pick, but he totally got bailed out, bobbled pass in the end zone. The decision-making in those, those moments, that is so key to be a quarterback and to be a good one in this league. That's what's going to make or break him. Emory Jones, question with him, will he look polished from the jump? He is rare in this era of college football. He is the blue chip recruit who waited until year four to start. He's in the same class as Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. Same age, people forget that. He's not getting the same sort of patience though as the other guys in tier two. And part of that is because Anthony Richardson, like when he's not throwing down in between the legs dunks that are going viral, he's getting rave reviews out of camp at Florida. Part of it is also the fact that the Florida quarterback standard, it's super high. Kyle Trask with the passing numbers that he put up, I highly doubt that the offense looks like that. I also highly doubt that the offense looks like it's Nick Fitzgerald 2.0. But when you've had those three years to develop, 
those expectations are higher. I'm trying to tell myself that I don't want to be swayed by the rotational quarterback play. Anthony Richardson, he's going to be involved. Let's just expect that Dan Mullen's going to do that moving forward. He's going to try and implement the blue chip quarterback. If that's his way of trying to keep that guy involved and make sure he doesn't feel like he's you know out of it and that keeps him on campus, whatever. Do what you got to do. I hated it at times with Trask because I felt like he was doing it when he was really cooking and it was unnecessary. But at the same time, I understood it. Did that make the difference between Emory Jones staying or leaving? I, I don't know, maybe, but he's here now, and that's what matters. He's in the top five nationally, in my opinion. And Will, I don't know if you disagree with this. In terms of pressure-packed jobs this year, I'd say like JT Daniels, DJ Uyangalele, they're ahead of him for different reasons. But I'd say like Emory Jones and Bryce Young are pretty much like tied in terms of the, the pressure that they're going to face on a weekly basis, how people talk about them, the standard that's been set for them. Is, do you think that's a fair thing to say? Is there a job that I'm forgetting about? It's probably Oklahoma quarterback job as well, although that's a more established guy with Rattler. But is there another guy that kind of comes to mind with those pressure-packed jobs? Yeah, I think I think Emory's a little bit different um, than Bryce just because, you know, for Bryce, it's year one. So, yeah, he's yeah. a blue-chip guy, but, like, if he doesn't start this year, it's not the biggest deal. Like well, you said. Two. You're two. Um, I mean, Bryce Young is – you got last you got last year, like, as, as QB2 to be able to do it, so. He wasn't going to take Max job, so I think it was his first year, and the trash thing was a little bit different. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at a guy in Emory that if he gets beat, he might have to do the Jalen Hurts and get up out of there quick, whereas, like, Bryce could come back and do something else. Okay, fair point. I think that both of those guys – Definitely all SEC upside. Mm -hmm. Emory, he has to be more accurate. That's his biggest thing. Haynes King, Texas A&M. The big question with him, is he going to be able to throw enough? And by enough, I mean enough to maximize A&M's weapons. That team has 10 of 11 guys who caught a pass back. That also that doesn't even include Baylor Cup, the former number one overall tight end. Doesn't include Cameron Buckley, a guy who had a season-ending injury last year. Also got the five-star from 2020, Damon Demas guy who is just off the charts athletic does like these backflips all the time and didn't crack the rotation year one had a little bit of an off the field issue in the spring but he's back he is a different kind of athlete and he can leap like kid can go up and get it he was actually in king's 2020 class as well i think haynes king is the x is the total x factor in the sec the guy is an unbelievable athlete. At high school ran a 4.5240, 37-inch vertical, 402 in the short shuttle. I went back and I watched all of his snaps last year. Remember, he played in that Bama blowout, and there are some AM fans who are like, hey, if Haynes King didn't play at the end of that game, and if they had lost by less, you know, maybe they would have been in a different standing with the playoff, whatever. So the interception that he threw in the end zone is what I'm referencing. I don't know if that makes the difference in whether or not AM has the smaller margin of defeat, but whatever the case, the guy is not going to be afraid to take chances. We know that. It's the cliche gunslinger thing, yeah, but he is an upgrade as a runner compared to Kellen Mond. The question is if Jimbo Fisher can trust him if and when he needs to throw 30 to 35 times a game. You need to be able to do that to beat Alabama. I also wonder if... Haynes King getting into that game last year against Alabama was like Jimbo's way of saying, get ready, kid, because this is, this is what you're going up against next year. Last year, AM built its offense around its personnel. I realized it, it, it's sort of like 
I, I realized very quickly into the season that they didn't need to rely on these 6'3", 6'4", receivers. They were smart to be able to play power football. They could also create space in the intermediate passing game with some of those shorter, shiftier guys, A-Chain and Smith. Also, Weidermeyer as well. I don't know why I left him out of the conversation. The question, can AM become, become balanced with Haynes King or is it going to feel run heavy? That's the end of Tier 2. Tier three, these are the takeover guys that we aren't sold on yet. They're coming back in the same offense, which is a key distinction between tier three and tier four. They're also basically like no excuse guys as well. Their coaches are gonna demand a lot of them. They started for the majority of last year, but there's a, a ton of variance here. Like they could either be all conference guys or they could be benched by midseason, and it wouldn't necessarily surprise me. This group is only too deep. Will Rogers, Mississippi State, Connor Bazelak, Mizzou. Like with tier two, we have one big question with them. Will Rogers, the question, can he hold off Southern Miss transfer Jack Abraham? Why did Leach bring in this kid, Jack Abraham? You've got a true freshman coming back, guy that looks like he fits your system. Two reasons. Abraham is better when things break down than Will Rogers is. If Mississippi State can't block anyone again, he's pro Abraham is probably the better option there. He was a multi-year starter at Southern Miss, passed for 3,000 yards in his last full season, but he is small. Six feet, 205 pounds. Rogers, 6'2", 205. Sawyer Robertson, the incoming freshman, 6'4", 200 pounds. You need depth, I think, to run this system, at least until they figure out those, their offensive line issues because they're like one bad hit away from being able to you know, be in a real, real tight pinch, and he does not want to be in that spot in year two. But you know that Leach struck that gold with Gardner Minshew. Mm -hmm. The grad transfer who comes in, he's undersized, but Leach just finds a way to make it work. Obviously... You know, I think that Abraham is going to be able to push Rodgers in camp. That's you know kind of the obvious thing, and it means that Mississippi State isn't just going to have like two true freshmen behind him. I, I honestly think it's tough to judge Rodgers based on last year because of how bad that offensive line was. He was better down the stretch, especially with Jaden Wally, who I'm going to butcher his name so many times because there shouldn't be a Jalen Waddle and then a Jaden Wally. That's just unfair. That's a mean thing for the SEC to do. Um, but if Leach doesn't see those strides early on, I, see, I think we see the quick leash. And I think we could see him go to Abraham, who's more experienced. You can't just be like Rodgers or a true freshman in year two. You just can't do that. Rodgers' projections all over the place. Some people think he won't start. Others think that he's going to be a lock to lead the SEC in passing. That's why he's tier three and not tier two. Connor Bazelak. Again, I, I always support a Connor who spells his name the right way. I do. The big question is not that. It's what in the world is his upside? And I've tried to wrap my mind around that. Sometimes when he reads those coverages, it just doesn't look very good. But then I, I, I like some of the tools with him. I really do. I think he's got a good feel for pressure. He's got a strong arm. He's got that mobility. 67% accuracy as a redshirt freshman in a new system. I love that. I think that's something that you could definitely build around. Mizzou, as Eli Drinkwitz said on this podcast, it needs to be able to stretch the field more. Drinkwitz has been raving about this kid, Mookie, Mookie Cooper, who came in from Ohio State. He's like 5'8", a buck 90. He's just built a little bit differently, not your typical mold for kind of that slot receiver. I'm still like more so wait and see with him. I know they were loaded at Ohio State. I don't want to get ahead of myself and assume that a guy who hasn't played yet is going to automatically take over in the SEC. Leary of like the whole offseason buzz transfer guy when he hasn't played. 
I really like, though, what Kiki Chisholm did down the stretch for Mizzou. I think Chisholm's going to give Bazelak some of those big throwing windows. Drinkowitz is going to push Bazelak. It's going to be constant throughout the offseason. Like, after the spring game, he called the quarterback performance blah. <laughs> like, he's going to have to do that. that that's, his going to be, that's going to be his option. The backups, redshirt freshman Brady Cook, true freshman Tyler Macon. Bazelak, he's got to stretch the field more consistently. I don't think you want him throwing 35 to 40 times yet. I don't think he's there. This is going to be a great test for Drinkowitz's development and the way that he's able to kind of build and recruit in that offense. Last year, Aaron Murray called Connor Bazelak the most gifted quarterback in the SEC. Hmm. That was a take. That was after the LSU game, which, Will, did Connor Bazelak look like the most gifted SEC quarterback against LSU? Every quarterback looked like the most gifted quarterback <laughs> against LSU. I thought you were going to say that. Except Kellen Mond. <laughs> true, true. Ironically enough, ironically enough. I think, I think Murray's right that he is such a natural thrower, Bazelak, but... Um, and he's capable of making those throws with the wide open windows like he was getting against LSU. He looked really, really good. That's what sparked, of course, Murray's comments. And I see that too. But Basilek also had that six game stretch with one touchdown pass. Just one. Not really good. Drinkowitz sort of said that that was because Roundtree was in the red zone and taking over. And I get that to a certain extent. And that's an easy thing to be able to play up. Mizzou also just didn't have that home run playability. That's the dimension that they need. I am... Very intrigued by Basilek in this offense. I would not be surprised to see him rise into tier one by season's end. Will, did you have a Basilek take that you were holding out on? No, 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 no. I'm just very happy for Mizzou. They really seem to be, you know, going in a good direction. And this is as, you know, as uh, fractured as this might be, it's much better than they were a year or two ago. You're in that mode too, where as an LSU fan, Mizzou could go like two and eight next year, and you'd be like, hey, don't sleep on Mizzou. You know, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the funny thing. You were talking about their vertical playability. I was like, dang, I saw a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. And two and eight, I'm still like on the 10 game schedule or something like that. No, they're playing, they're playing all 12 games this year, at least we think. Okay, so tier four, moving into tier four. This is new coaching staff, likely short leash starters. Bo Nix, Ken Seals, Luke Doty. Bonix. All right. I already did the Bonix. Like, I did the rant on him. You know, I don't want to go too into detail about that. Listen to last week's podcast, shameless plug. I think this is going to be like a mid October thing. By then, if Auburn is out of contention and it's clear that Bonix isn't getting it, then the freshman, uh, Demetrius Davis, he's going to get the look. They might do the thing where, like, if Auburn is getting blown out, they let Davis come in late and let that sort of decide it, let that dictate kind of public perception. The weird thing though, Auburn's first half of the season is brutal. I mean, it is a gauntlet. You've got that game at Penn State. You've also kick off SEC play at LSU and then home against Georgia. So Auburn could have three losses by the second week of October. There's a very realistic path for that to happen in year one of the Brian Harson era. If that's the case, that really opens things up. Ken Seals, Vandy. I honestly have no idea what Clark Lee is going to do here. My guy Chuck Oliver in Atlanta, he loves Ken Seals. Man, I think I've been asked about Ken Seals like twice in the last year, and both of them came from Chuck Oliver. Um, I feel bad for judging Ken Seals last year because Vandy's depth was just, uh, it was a train wreck. It was hard to watch. But at the same time, like not a ton of guys who averaged 6.7 yards per attempt for a year go on to become these elite power five starters. Um, again, I'll, I'll hold out on that a little bit here, but this looks like a, a tag team effort 
with the offense. They've got Joey Lynch, passing game coordinator. They've got David Rye as well. Seals was in a way kind of the prototypical freshman, stretches where he flashes the, the potential, all that. Um, looks really good against Florida, Kentucky, but then he had stretches where it wasn't there. Mizzou, LSU. I have been banging the drum for more Michael Wright. I, I want him to become like Vandy's version of John Rice Plumley, which might be a bit idealistic, whatever. But they could turn to him if Seals struggles early. Luke Doty, South Carolina quarterback. I get why South Carolina fans love them some Luke Doty. He's the four-star guy who played and stayed. He's the reason pretty much South Carolina fans could tune into a game at the end of last year and not be totally depressed. The guy kept his head down. He played his tail off. I give him so much credit for that. That was a team that had just so many roster issues, and it could have been much, much worse down the stretch if he wasn't out there busting his tail. But we're looking at someone who has yet to lead a 20-point effort in college. He has yet to throw for 200 yards in a game. And his only completion that went more than 30 yards, I went back and watched it. It was like a little trick play, did this reverse. It's a wobbly ball, throws it to the tight end on the left sideline for 35 yards. All right, whatever. Um, He's also basically got two runs that went for more than 10 yards. So yeah, he's mobile, but how has he figured out how to use it? That's the key question. He's more mobile than Jake Bentley, Ryan Holinsky, Colin Hill for sure, but it's a small sample size. Shane Beamer brought in this St. Francis transfer, Jason Brown. Will, here's a little trivia question for you. Do you know where St. Francis is? Saint FCS Francis. school. St. Francis? That's, that sounds like a small Louisiana town, but is, I'm going to guess Florida. You are off by a couple thousand miles, but not terrible. Okay. You're on the right, you're in the right time zone, um, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Oh. Um, yeah, a little bit further away. It's like an hour and a half outside of Pittsburgh, I think. I looked it up because I was curious too. Um, but whatever the case, he didn't have a season because FCS. And he was actually out for the first part of camp because of illness, but he threw for over 3,000 yards, 28 touchdowns in his last full season in 2019. Big kid too, 6'3", 235 pounds. This is still Luke Doty's job to lose. I am still really in wait and see mode with him. Got to be able to throw the ball in 2021 or it just doesn't work. Tier five, and before everyone gets upset, yes. Tier five is 100% because of Malik Willis. Why is it because of Malik Willis? Because it's stupid to rank quarterbacks in the conference when we don't know if they're going to start. And you can just be, you know, made out to look like a fool and an idiot in the spring. Um, We can, I, I don't have a problem with doing like the how many guys would, or how many teams would that guy start for? You know what I mean? But I think it gets a little bit stupid when we're starting to rank guys in the top 14. I, I get why we have to do it, but that's why I like doing tiers. So all of tier five, these are battle guys. They can't be ranked yet until we know they're starting. And not like, oh, it's unlikely that they're start, or, you know, they're probably going to start. These are the guys who locked in in true battles. There's three, in my opinion, true battle guys, and they all have new offensive coordinators as well. LSU with Miles Brennan, Max Johnson, and TJ Finley. Kentucky with Joey Gatewood, Bo Allen, and Wheel. Wheel. His name is Will. Very hard name to pronounce, to be fair. And his name is Levis. It is, apparently. His name is Will, and his last name is Levis. And then Tennessee with Hendon Hooker, Harrison Bailey, Caden Salter, and Brian Maurer. By calling this Tier 5, it sounds like they're at the bottom of a ranking. But again... It's not just based on that. It's these guys are too tough to rank. If I'm doing preseason rankings, 
Miles Brennan is probably in my top five SEC quarterbacks, but if Max Johnson wins the job, which he very well could, then that's useless. And what's the point of doing that? These guys will move out of tier five when they show that they're the best quarterback on their own team and they're the starter. LSU, I have gone a little bit all over the place, but I still come back to my belief that, okay, I finished last year thinking Max Johnson he has to be the guy. You beat Florida, you beat Ole Miss, you show what you've got when you actually get to start. But then I'm like, wait, am I doing the thing where we overvalue quarterbacks winning games? Don't get it twisted. Max Johnson, he passed the eye test when he finally got to start, but the dude averaged 6.6 yards per attempt against Florida. We forget about that because when you throw a shoe and it goes viral, that's what we're going to talk about. He also went off against a very, very bad Ole Miss defense at home. Not taking anything away, but both of those games were actually won on totally inept place. The thrown shoe in the Florida game, and then go back and watch the tackling on that Kayshawn Butte touchdown. Oh, bad, real bad, real bad. Johnson was super close to being 0-2 as a starter, but instead he gets the credit for that. Miles Brennan didn't get that lucky bounce at the end of the Mizzou game. Mizzou actually played defense on that last play, unlike Ole Miss. Brennan's 430-yard, four-touchdown performance gets wiped away. It's an afterthought. It's how could LSU lose to Mizzou? What's wrong with LSU? I've said it before, Miles Brennan, he is on my all-bang-the-drum team. I am buying low. I'll buy whatever shares you want to give me. I truly think this is a battle. I think Johnson had the leg up going into camp. But as we've said, Miles Brennan looks like a tank. And if he continues to look really good, this is going to go down to the wire. If we find out that Johnson is the starter... He's a tier two guy. He's automatically a tier two guy. If we find out that Brennan's the starter, he'd be a really, really tough rank for me. I'd almost, I, I really would almost go with tier one. I almost go with tier one, but I probably end up with tier two. Basically, I would treat this as like a do-over to where he was at last year, where he's supposed to be the next up and coming guy. The thing that's tough about them is like, so if you look at the the analytics last year, it was literally Trask, Mac Jones, and Miles Brennan for the first, you know, the games that Miles Brennan played. And then he had that horrific injury, so we don't really know where he's at with that. But, I mean, Max Johnson, he has a porn star name, and he won all those games, or those two games, which is like half of our wins. So LSU fans love him, but overall, yeah, I mean, if Miles Brennan doesn't win that job, it's a problem. It is a problem. I think we can say that. Tennessee, the Caden Salter arrest slash suspension, it didn't really help with this battle. I still thought he was going to need to add some weight. He was going to have to learn the offense. But as I said a few weeks ago, I think Hooker makes the most sense to start for Josh Heupel. Brian Maurer, Harrison Bailey, they're going to have a shot, but I think you need a certain sort of quickness to be able to process Heupel's offense. Given the offensive line issues, I would worry about Bailey and Maurer. Hooker doesn't throw the deep ball like Dylan Gabriel. That's fine, but I think he throws it well enough. If Hooker wins the job, what tier does he go to? It's probably only tier four for now. I still want to see Hooker against SEC defenses. I know we saw him do it at times at Virginia Tech. I think the ACC was pretty bad. I think the ACC was pretty bad, and I'm holding off a little bit of that judgment. I don't know what Heupel's patience level is going to be. I think it's so key for him to show that he can put up points in year one because I think defensively, Tennessee is going to be the worst in the league. I really do. I'll put that on anything right now, even if... Even if they get Toto back and, and Crouch, even if those guys announce tomorrow they're coming back, I think Tennessee is in a world of hurt defensively, and it's going to be a really uphill climb. So Heupel is going to have a need to, to score a ton of points, obviously, and it's going to demand a lot of that offense. Will he have those that forgiveness for mistakes? I don't know. It could be like the, the K.J. Costello situation last year with Leach, where 
Leach basically said, well, uh, I'm in year one, so it doesn't really matter if I bench the Power 5 grad transfer in favor of a true freshman. So a lot of twists and turns probably ahead with the Tennessee quarterback job. What else is new? Kentucky. My gut and everything that I'm hearing says it's going to be Bo Allen. From what I've heard, he has looked like the guy. Now, you've got to think about this because Liam Cohen, my doppelganger, he comes in and immediately neighbor Terry Wilson transfers. Joey Gatewood was brought in to replace Terry Wilson and run Eddie Grant's offense. I know that Gatewood, he made strides as a thrower. We've heard a lot about that, but it's just a different offense than the one that he signed up for. What had to appeal to Liam Cohn when he comes to Kentucky? That they had someone like Bo Allen. Adam Luckett of uh, Kentucky Sports Radio pointed this out. The skill set that Bo Allen has is pretty similar to Jared Goff, which suggests that he is more than capable of running this new offense. The way that he can stretch the field and make those reads, that's important. They went out, they got Will Levis, crushed the pronunciation that time, Penn State transfer. And the kid's got a cannon. There's this like, like TikTok video of him that went viral of a year ago. I don't know why they ran him so much at Penn State. That was weird. I remember watching the Nebraska game thinking, this guy can throw. What are they doing just running him the entire time? Why would he go to Kentucky if it looks like Bo Allen's going to be the guy? Well, they've got, they've got Levis for, they got him two months after Cohen got there. And he's also going to be a summer enrollee. Not everyone is Joe Burrow. Not everybody's going to show up in the middle of the offseason and be able to take over. He also, this kid has three years of eligibility left. Bo Allen has four years of eligibility left. This kind of feels like Kentucky is just making sure that it isn't putting all of its eggs into the basket of Bo Allen because at 207 pounds, you, know, you just never know. Like if maybe they're preparing for Gatewood to transfer, they could still be set up with options with Levis as well. I'm guessing that, that Cohen liked Allen's skill set and that helped sell him on coming to Kentucky and he's not relying on some summer enrollee to come in and pick up the system that quickly. That's a tough turnaround. If that's the case, I think Bo Allen starts off in tier four with tier two upside. Because I know some of you are starved for these rankings, why don't we do this a little bit? Why don't we can do this? I'll predict first team, second team, and third team all SEC quarterbacks for the end of the season. So that's not where they're going to start off when we come out with this, you know, the poll in July. I'm talking end of the year, where these guys are going to finish that first week of December. First team, JT Daniels. Second team, Bryce Young. Third team, Matt Corral. Will, here's a question. Who's the last Georgia quarterback to earn a first team All-SEC honor? Man, so... Did, it's David, not who you think. Mm, David Green. David Green. That is incorrect. That was a good guess, though. That was a really good guess. I like okay. that you went there. It wasn't Aaron Murray. It wasn't Matt Stafford. DJ Shockley, SEC DJ Network fan. DJ Shockley, huh? That's right. 2005. He split it with uh, with my guy, Jay Cutler. Hmm. So, yeah, there's a fun fun little trivia question for you. Um, I think some of the team stuff might work against Matt Corral if they aren't competing for a division title, which I think Ole Miss is going to be better, but that kind of dictates some of the narrative. I think it'll be awfully hard to match the numbers that he put up last year without Elijah Moore. And I think the defense, though I'm not sold on DJ Derrick and Chris Partridge as defensive coordinators, I think Ole Miss's defense should actually still be a little bit better. So there you have it. Quarterback tiers. Will, any, any closing thoughts on that? That was so much. That was a lot of me listening. But Dude, I'm, that was so much. I'm excited. I, I'm going to have to re-listen to this on like 0.5 speed and then, then I'll have opinions. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, let me take a breath here. Let's go to my interview with uh, Pro Football Focus's Mike Renner. Mike does just such a great job with the draft coverage for PFF. He was on Dan Patrick's show the other day, so he's big time now. Uh, we got to break down a ton of SEC draft prospects. So here is Pro Football Focus's Mike Renner. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Pro Football Focus's Mike Renner. Mike, before we get into some draft stuff, I have a rule that I, I always have to ask the owners of a Bulldog how they're doing. So how's your boy Riggins doing? He's doing great, actually. He's at my aunt's right now because I'm going to a bachelor party here this upcoming weekend. And so I, I think he's doing well there. I can't actually speak to his livelihood and well-being at the current moment, but he's been, he's been great. All right, I, I didn't. I like kind of rolled the dice there. The worst case scenario would have been like you respond, "Oh yeah, he's been in the hospital." I know Bulldogs <laughs> have those issues. That would have broken my heart. Yeah. man. he's not that old yet. I think he's only five. So, hopefully, we got a few right. more years before those uh, you know, the normal Bulldog issues start popping up. Good, good. Well, let's go from one Bulldog to another. Uh, well, I, I guess a former Bulldog. The Justin Fields thing, it feels like a bit of a mess. And I know a lot has been said and written about him. Um, PFF, you guys have done a, a ton of different stuff on this. And it's very fluid, it seems like. What do you make of all the noise with the fourth-round grade that, that one team has? And, you know, just kind of the varying overall opinions on him right now. Do you think this is all just kind of smokescreen after smokescreen and that he's going to end up still going in the top four? Or do you think that some of this stuff and some of the concerns have some legitimacy? Yeah, I mean, if I'm the Carolina Panthers sitting at eight, I'd love to go broadcast. I have a fourth-round grade on them. Get them to fall to me. You know, I, I think it's a, a lot of BS. I don't see how you can look at his tape and the tool that brings the table and give him a fourth-round grade. But there are uh, I mean, not everyone's a competent evaluator, I will say, uh, at any level. So I, I, nothing surprises me anymore, but I would be floored if he falls past eight. I just, it would blow my mind. I, I really do think a lot of this is smokescreen. Like the talent, the physical talent he brings to the table, not even like the on-field, what he's already done at the quarterback position, is as good as it gets, basically. Like in the past decade in terms of just like arm strength, accuracy, rushing ability, size, like all those boxes that he ticks are as good as it gets. Like I said, I, I do think there are legitimate on-field concerns. I can see valuing you know some of the other guys in this class over him with what, you know, he showed Northwestern game this past year, Indiana game this past year. But I think the concerns are more than fixable and also have more to do with the offense he was in than necessarily Justin Fields himself. So, yeah, I I really can't believe the conversation has gotten to this point with Justin Fields. Yeah, I, I have a theory that too. If if it wasn't Indiana and Northwestern who actually both end up being top twenty five teams, but if it was instead like Michigan State and Penn State who he struggled against, like people would just be talking about those two games so differently. Yeah. But for whatever reason, that has continued to be this this big storyline. You wrote back in January that Fields was one of those guys who could have gone number one overall, probably in another year, like maybe any other year, but because of the way that the draft has set up now with Trevor Lawrence kind of being this unanimous number one, here's perhaps a more interesting hypothetical question. How would we be talking about Fields' draft stock had he stayed at Georgia? Ooh, no, that's a good one. I, I think people would feel a lot more comfortable drafting him. Like he would not be getting the same 
concerns because if you play again, I think you touched and hit the nail on the head there. If you play poorly against an SEC defense, you play poorly against Alabama, hey, you play poorly against Alabama's defense. Uh, you know, like you can excuse that away. So I, I do think it'd be a vastly different conversation, but you just go back and look at some of the quarterbacks that went number one overall. Like Jared Goff, you really think Jared Goff's a better prospect for what he did at Cal than Justin Fields? You know, some of these guys that have gone number one overall in the past, like even Jameis Winston, his last season, he didn't have issues at Florida State his last year. He had some god-awful games there. So it really does blow my mind that the conversation's gotten to this point. Your last mock had Mac Jones going to the Patriots at number nine. I've seen some takes with Mac that I think are fair. You know, the, the, the stuff about his accuracy is the thing that's his biggest selling point. But even that, it's got to be pinpoint in order for him to succeed with his skill set in the NFL. It seems like everyone is kind of one way or the other with him. But at least if we start talking about him as a potential top four pick, that's where the line in the sand seems to be drawn. And of course, that kind of came to a head in the last week or so. I already know that we disagree on this. So tell me why you hate Mac Jones. <laughs> it's not hate. It's just what he's, what he's done is so limited. You look at the routes he's targeting basically in Alabama's offense, where he's attacking on the football field. I put this in an article I wrote about the best fits for Cal Shanahan's offense. And he fits Cal Shanahan's offense because he works the middle of the field, works the intermediate range. That's where he's attacking, but you don't see him work outside the numbers. You don't see him work verticals, especially outside the numbers. Most of his, the vast majority of his verticals are post goes from the seam or goes from the slot, that sort of thing, where he's not actually expanding the field. He's having to shrink the field because of that lack of arm strength. And when he did have to actually make those throws that take the arm strength, he struggled. And so, it's not like Joe Burrow, who Burrow had that lack of arm strength, but you still saw him hitting goal balls to Jamar Chase on the outside, hitting corner outs to Jamar Chase, that sort of thing. You really don't see that on Mac Jones' tape that often. So those are the concerns with me. Like, you can win with the Mac Jones in the NFL just like you can win with the Kirk Cousins in the NFL, but it's going to be tough or, or to build around that guy than it is. It's more the quarterback class that he's in is the detriment to him, is that there's guys who are – loaded with what they bring to the table physically like elite four guys who bring just a skill set that is an all-around athletic arm strength all that and for him to to draft him over two of those guys just and to give three first round picks to do it in the 49ers case which is where the sort of arrows are pointing i just can't i can't get on board with that okay so i'll, I'll agree that doing the whole like Tom Brady didn't have a great arm, so and you know, so Mac Jones doesn't necessarily need to have a great arm to succeed in the NFL. Like that's a dumb thing that Brady, for Brady whatever does reason. though. Like that's the thing. Brady can Brady threw one like almost seventy yards to Randy Moss back in the Super Bowl, so it was almost play against the Giants back in 07. Like Brady has a cannon for an arm. It, he just gets lumped in the pocket passer. I, I think Mac Jones' arms like it's more on like the Kirk Cousins, maybe Derek Carr spectrum of it's fine but it's not going to expand, like I said, expand the football field for you and do the things that basically the elite quarterbacks in the NFL are doing today. Okay, so let me throw this at you. I see Mac and the things that he does well with you know, some of the, the footwork in the pocket and just the way that he's able to kind of sense pressure. He actually, for all the concerns about the lack of mobility, the guy, in my opinion, does a really good, good job of keeping plays alive. What about 
the Big Ben comp because I, I realize physically, like Mac's not gonna get to that level. He's not 6'5", he doesn't have that kind of weight to put on. Big Ben's listed at like 240, but he's not, probably hasn't been 240 since eighth grade or something like that. But <laughs> if you were, cause if you were, like if you were redrafting 2004, Big Ben is going in the top four along with Eli Rivers, and then probably you'd throw in Larry Fitzgerald with that as well. My, I guess my question is why can't Mac have like Big Ben's type of career? I feel like the more similar one from that class would be Rivers from a tools perspective. Like Rivers mm. never had the arm. I think Big Ben still had a good arm. Like he could sling it down the football field. He was one of the best deep passers in the NFL for a while or a good stretch there. And like came out of the gate right away for Pittsburgh. Like I think he averaged, I think he was like top five in yards per attempt his rookie year. So he was going down the football field. I just don't foresee that being Mac Jones. Like if he's going to win, it's going to have to be through the high end way he sees the game and my kind of problem with that is that you know Drew Brees is the ultimate didn't win with his arm Drew Brees didn't become Drew Brees until what year six of like you have to master he mastered Alabama's offense at college level you got to wait for him to master basically NFL coverages and whatever offense he's in at the NFL what will happen year two year three a lot of those guys that do are in that mold it happens more year five year six year seven when you're a, a veteran then at that point all right, that's fair. That's perfectly fair. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I, I know you're a big Jamar Chase guy. I love the clip that you put out of him um, where it's it's the Alabama game and just kind of a reminder of, of just how special of a guy he is because I think when a guy opts out like that in the draft world, we, for whatever reason, it, it seems to be sort of lost in the shuffle what a guy did the previous year. So I'll let you finish this sentence. Jamar Chase is the best receiver prospect since who? At least Amari Cooper. And that's when you're starting to split hairs with me in terms of who's better. I think Amari Cooper was a better pure route runner. I think Chase had better ball skills and attacked the ball better, like through contact and whatnot. So I think you're splitting hairs there. Then you go back to A.J. Green, Julio Jones. I wouldn't put him on the level of either of those two as a wide receiver prospect. But like I said, I think at least Amari Cooper. Yeah, I was, I was expecting Amari or Sammy Watkins to be the answer to that. But Sammy Watkins, at the same time, doesn't feel like putting, putting Chase in that category doesn't feel yeah. right just because of what we know about Sammy Watkins. His career. Like Amari yeah. still. Yeah, like it's, it's almost unfair. Sammy Watkins, um, I mean, go back and watch him early with the Bills, though. That guy was as advertised. He, his, his issues were not – one, he, just, he had a ton of injuries, and then two – his off-field mental outside of the game was not. I mean, just if you go go out and read stuff about him, you'll see it's not where it probably needed to be. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't worry about that as much with with Chase. He seems to have yeah. his, his head on straight for sure. Let's let's say you got to bet the house on Jamar Chase or Kyle Pitts becoming a Hall of Famer. Who's your guy? I think Kyle Pitts just because his route's easier. Like any tight end, you put up numbers, tight end. I think he's gonna be a Hall of Famer. Not a lot of tight ends put up, put up numbers, and if. If someone's drafting him, top five, top six, top seven, wherever he's going to go, I, I would hard, be hard-pressed to see him fall past seven. You're going to do it to have a plan in your offense. You're going to do it to feature him in your offense. And as soon as that happens, like I, I think he'll historically, the numbers he's going to put up compared to tight ends are going to be pretty special throughout his career. How high is too high to take Kyle Pitts? Because I feel like he's going to end up at a place like – like maybe he goes to Miami and Miami just says, oh, we wanted the best player on the board and we don't care that we've already got a tight end because 
doesn't really matter if we just run a bunch of 12 personnel, run these two tight end sets, and he ends up having a, you know, a legitimate career there. Is, is there a number in mind where, is it just, just as simple as he probably shouldn't go in the top three with what's available at quarterback? Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like, I don't think he's worth any sort of sweetheart deal, passing up any sweetheart deal of a trade if you're the Falcons. But if you're sitting at four and you're the Falcons and no one's looking to move up a quarterback and you really don't want to move off Matt Ryan or get a quarterback, I draft Kyle Pitts. He's that, he's that rare for his position that like you can go find, you can find tackle in the second round if you're the Falcons. You can find a wide receiver in the second round if you're the Falcons. You can't find Kyle Pitts. I mean, you can't find Kyle Pitts in the last six drafts or whatever. Like, he just doesn't exist, that guy. Oftentimes, it's a rare, it's a different level of movement skills. That guy exists in the NBA. He doesn't exist on NFL fields yeah. mostly. You had uh, you had something that I thought was spot on related to Jalen Waddle, Elijah Moore. That is, Elijah Moore is closer to Jalen Waddle and safer in some ways than he's been given credit for. That sounds like you're not as sold on Waddle yet, or perhaps. That's maybe just as simple as you'd much rather have more at like 25 back into the first round, something like that, than Waddle at, at number nine. Can you kind of explain kind of where exactly you're at with both of those guys? Oh, I love Waddle. That is no knock on Waddle. That is Elijah Moore is, I think he's special. I mean, the athletic testing he put up, you can, you don't have to disregard or like the, the 40 times the time drills, whatever if you don't believe the pro days, even making a pro day adjustment of a 10th of a second on all of those are still elite numbers. And then the thing you can't fake is he did 17 bench press reps at 178 pounds. He is an ox and he plays that way at the receiver position. And that's kind of Jalen Waddle's selling point too, is he plays very physical for being an undersized speedster. Like he'll go up and take shots and still come down with footballs. Elijah Moore did that more on tape than even Jalen Waddle. And I think he can play on the outside. That's why I said I, I think he's given, hasn't been given as much credit uh, as he deserves because he went up against J.C. Horn. Like that's the biggest thing about Waddle that's kind of still unsure is him being press coverage. And I feel pretty good about it. But Elijah Moore went up against J.C. Horn in the slot and did better against J.C. Horn getting off his getting off line of scrimmage than anyone I saw this past year in college football. J.C. Horn is not an easy cornerback to get off of, and for him to do it, uh, that makes you feel good about what he could do. Except with NFL corners as well. Yeah, I, I love I love Elijah Moore too, and I, I think that even what he did in 2019 in Rich Rod's offense, which is not supposed to yield success for wide receivers and the numbers that he put up that year, I think that's a huge selling point for for him as well, and for people that might think he's a one year wonder, absolutely not the case. Quick sidebar: Have you ever had a player or an agent reach out to you about something that you tweeted or wrote? Like I was just picturing that scenario where. Like maybe Jalen Waddles, people are like, hey, you know, maybe maybe don't say that about him and compare him to Elijah Moore. Like we want him to go in the top fifteen. Like, have you ever been in those scenarios? And if so, you should definitely name names. Uh no. Usually, I get if, if I'm getting agents reaching out, they're like, hey, like hype my hype my guy up. No one's talking about him. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Hey, stop shitting on my boy. <laughs> um, it, it feels like if. Terrace Marshall, if he were in any other draft in the last three years where there wasn't a receiver picked in the top 10, I think we'd be having a much different view of, of his draft stock. I, I see him as someone who does a little bit of everything. Is he seen as more of a late first round guy because of just how good this class of receivers is? Or is it because 
someone he was someone that like last year I think he played something like 75% of his snaps in the slot and maybe there are some questions about whether or not he could be a full-time guy on the outside like what exactly is is the reservation with Terrace Marshall because I feel like in so many years this guy would be a lot to go in the top 15. Yeah I don't know about top 15 I don't know why he opt out because I think that's like a big part of this I don't know why he opted out like you still needed more tape on this guy he was you know, third mm. fiddle in 2019, finally gets to be the guy and then opts out, right? It was halfway through the season or something. I only played six games this past year before uh, opting out. And then, like, when you are playing in the slot, you're not facing you're not facing the top corners on opposing teams. And so that's that's almost a bigger thing than anything else. Like, yeah, he looked great doing that. And I think it uh, showed off a di- little different skill set that we saw from him in 2019. But also, if you're not facing top corners, you're kind of just getting free releases. Uh, it was kind of similar to the reservations people had about Justin Jefferson, why he yeah. only comes off the board at 22 last year. So, or 23, whatever he came off. That's like, I think the bigger thing there is if you're just playing the slot and you're kind of just getting these free releases up in the field a lot of times, you don't know how that guy's going to fare. But I, I'm, I'm high on him. Like, I, I think he's going to be a slam dunk forever. Gets him. He's not even 21 years old yet. Yeah, every time I see him mock to like the Ravens or something like that, I think that's exactly what Lamar Jackson needs. Just let him go, have a guy that yeah. can go up and get it, can play in a variety of spots, makes a lot of sense. Every time I see Kadarius Tony mocked to my Chicago Bears, I, uh, I get a little excited at first because in so many ways, that's kind of what they need. Um, but then I get really depressed because I think this coaching staff would basically treat him like he's Cordero Patterson and they'd have no idea what to do with him. I don't, I don't want to wish that on Tony. Like that'd be, that'd be really bad. And I'm trying to be unselfish here. I know he's still developing as a route runner after this year. I just thought he made such a tremendous step in, in that department. What do you think his NFL potential is? That's the thing. It's you just have to basically get cleaner and crisper. And in the NFL, you know, it's great that he can shake guys left and right, but you got to play within the timing. You got to be, you got to get off the line of scrimmage. You got to get to your route breaks. And a lot of times he was still dancing, uh, and, and he had that leeway in the slot there at Florida in in that offense and with the role he had there. But if you if you're drafting him 19, it's not to be basically just a slot you know, gadget type of weapon. You want him to be a number one type of wide or a, a number one type of wide receiver. You want him to be able to win this line on the outside. And he has the tools. It's just you need to see that development from him. And I think he hit the nail on the head of he looked like a different player even this past year in terms of just the consistency in that aspect. I thought he looked really good at the senior bowl as well in that regard. So the trajectory, the upward trajectory is there. The past injury history, the fact that he is you know, his quarterback coming in to Florida, changed positions, never really played wide receiver until he got there. So I think also a nice kick in his favor. Uh, so I, I can see the, like I said, the upward trajectory of his career continuing. Like he has all the tools to be that guy at the NFL level. Like he's he Stephon Diggs, very similarly sized, just talented all around route runner. That could be who he is. Is it hard to evaluate guys in Dan Mullen's offense this past year? Because it, it felt like it was just so loaded with weapons and I, I know things kind of fell apart down the stretch there. And, but when they were when they were at full strength and they had Grimes out there and, and Tony doing what he was doing and Pitts, of course, where you could just line them up all over the place. It was hard, to, like I, I imagine Trask is kind of the hardest guy to evaluate of that group, but it just felt like such a unique setup there with what they were trying to do and the emphasis that they put on throwing the ball. Was that was that a struggle like just for you dealing with that in the pre-draft process of knowing how unique this offense was? 
I thought actually it, I won't say it made, it made it easier for Pitts, in my opinion, because that role that he ran there is what you would want him to do in the NFL level. And I thought it actually made it easier for Trask because Dan Nolan's offense is not play action. It's not RPOs. It's not screens. It's still drop back passing concepts. Now he does have a lot of guys open and that's, you know, that's some of that's, Mac Jones, too. That's Justin Fields. That's a lot of guys in this draft class at the quarterback position. He did have a lot of guys open, but I thought it made it easier to see, hey, you know, he's running. I think he ran the most drop back, you know, normal drop back passes of, you know, non-play action, non-RPO, non-screens of any quarterback in the country this past year. And so from that perspective, you saw a lot of things that he will do in the NFL now. Like I said, the ease of what he then had to do from there was unfortunate for his draft prospects. Like, he didn't have to go to his non-first read a lot because those guys were getting open. but And then you saw him struggle with that in the Oklahoma game when he didn't have those guys. But I do think the offense itself was helpful for, I'll say, those two's evaluation in my eyes. You're one of the only people I've seen who mocked J.C. Horn ahead of Patrick Sertan. And to be honest, I was kind of mad when I saw that because I wanted that to be my spicy pre-draft take that I think Horn ends up being the better player than Sertan in the NFL. Tell, tell us why that's a legitimate debate that teams looking for that lockdown corner should be having. I think it's the, what, what's more coveted. It comes back to the rarity of skill set of what do you want the most in the NFL? You want the guy that can play press man coverage. Who, who plays press man the best in this draft? J.C. Horn. That's the, that's the rare skill. You can get a lot of guys who can succeed in zone. You can get a lot of guys with good ball skills, that sort of thing. But you can't get a lot of guys who can go up and punch opposing receivers in the mouth, play after play, and, and not be scared and keep coming back for it and not get beaten deep the way we saw in J.C. Horn's tape. And, yeah, there's issues. Like, you're not, he's not going to be able to play that same style at the NFL level. But he's a very easy player to fall in love with with that style. Like, you're going to – coaches are going to say, I'd rather have the guy that I can – try to reel in then the guy can try to coach up to be like that i just thought of something that's like your elijah moore jalen waddle take eric stokes is closer to patrick sertan and safer in some ways than he's been given Ooh. credit for did i do that right you did i can't get on board with that one though that one's explain that one to me I just thought that Stokes was that lockdown guy at Georgia, and if he had come in as a four-star recruit, he would have been given a lot more credit instead of the Patrick Sertans of the world, who, don't get me wrong, what Patrick Sertan did to improve was remarkable, but I just thought that Patrick Sertan comes in with the NFL bloodlines, and he's the five-star guy, and we just kind of assume, and then you look at, oh, everybody tried to avoid him this past year, whereas teams took chances on Eric Stokes. He didn't have the gaudy interception numbers coming into this year, so he's kind of off people's radar. And then all of a sudden he has the year that he does. He has the, the pro day performance that he does. And people are like, hey, this Eric Stokes guy is pretty darn good. We just probably weren't talking about him enough. But like, he seems like a lock to go in the second round, right? Yeah, I would assume so. I think him and Cam will probably come off the board with how much teams need corners and how much teams value speed at cornerback position. Uh, I, I think he's I just think he's a vastly, I think he's a different type than Sertan. If like you're looking for, Sertan's got the length, the size. Stokes not quite on that level. He's a little bit thinner framed. He can get a little bodied a little bit more than Sertan can. Last one here, and I'll I'll let you go. Kellen Mond's draft stock. It has been going through the roof uh, the last couple weeks. And, and I saw the tweet about how he won't get out of round two along with Davis Mills, a guy that you like a lot. 
I think a huge part of that is probably because just how much quarterback movement there is this offseason with possibly four quarterbacks in the top four, maybe five in the first round. There's this market for the teams who won't be able to get into the top four and pay that premium price that we talked about. But those teams who still aren't satisfied with their quarterback. So if I give you the ability to make a pick for one of those teams, and maybe it's my Chicago Bears, in the middle of the second round, Kellen Mond is sitting there. Kyle Trask is also sitting there. Who are you taking? That's a tough one. I think I'd go Kyle Trask. I I get the Kellen Mond love and what there is to like about him. He has legitimate tools as well. But, but I think a lot of people see his profile and they think Dak Prescott. And it's not kind of an easy correlation. Yeah. Not a lot of talent around him. One games, but... Dak Prescott's the outlier. I don't think of Dak Prescott's just about to come along. Uh, to me, Kyle Trask is the more intriguing sort of ascension in terms of how he, how much he improved from 2019 to 2020. The fact that that was his first two years of starting quarterback ever. The fact that he wins from the pocket very consistently. I thought he's one of the best in terms of manipulating pockets and actually you know, still dealing with pressure and getting the ball out. I thought a lot of the chances and throws he had to Cal Pitts this last year. Yeah, Cal Pitts, you know, made the most of them. But a lot of those are throws you have to make in the NFL where you're giving your guy a chance, throwing him open, and putting it where only your guy can get it. And that's some guys don't do that. I don't think Kellen Mond did that a ton on his tape at Texas A&M. There's like he was legitimately hampered by the lack of talent and couldn't rise above that more often than not. And yes, you know, Kyle Trask had some talent, but I think even when things did go wrong and obviously the Oklahoma game gets he gets pooped on for that but I it to me was a little overblown the interceptions two of them were I don't think really necessarily his fault or when he got hit on one was a miscommunication with the wide receiver I think so I, I do I would I think I would rather have Kyle Trask in that hypothetical Mike this has been uh, great stuff really appreciate the time I know you got a lot going on I uh, wish you and Riggins the best of luck getting through the home stretch here Appreciate it, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Well, I've got a little story for you and the people to start off figuring out here. So last Friday, going for a little morning run, and it's like 8 a.m., and I get to uh, this place at the end of my run, and it's like, all right, a little context here. It's like two miles away from, from my house, going on a little four-mile run here. And so I'm at the very end of my run where I usually would turn around. And I'm at this street that is you know, pretty busy, and I see this, this dog that looks like it belongs to someone. And I'm like, surely this dog has an owner, and it'll come walking down this street around the corner in like two seconds. That doesn't happen at all. So I am left wondering, what should I do? So I do what probably anybody listening to this would do. I stop and I look at the dog's collar, which it had one, and luckily it had a name, a little, little dog named Lucy, and it had a phone number on there. So I'm like, all right, easy enough. I'll call, I'll call the owner, I'll bring it over, easy enough, not hard, this will be a 10 minute deal. Call the owner, no answer. I'm like, that's not great, not how I saw this going. <laughs> call the owner again, nothing. Meanwhile, this entire time, I'm trying to get this dog to like stay in this area because it's kind of on a busy street. And if it wanders off, it's gonna be bad news bears. Call the owner a third time, nothing. I'm like kind of panicking here. 
And I'm thinking, I'm two miles away from my house. What should I do? So I call my wife, who's like already started work, and she says, have the dog follow you home. I'm thinking to myself, this dog follows me home two miles. It is dog of the year. The dog followed me home for a mile, a full mile. And I had to do the thing where when I would pass people, I'd be like, it's a stray. I'm not one of those idiots. Cause like I would see them looking at me like, dude, put your dog on a leash. Cause I had to basically <laughs> cross like past busy streets and stuff like that. And I, I looked like a moron. So the entire time I'm like freaking out. This dog's going to run into the middle of the street. And then sure enough, one mile into the two miles back and we're in a residential area. This dog has had enough. It's not following me anymore. And God bless it for running that far behind me. But it decides it's gonna start weaving in and out of cars. And I freak out, I freak out. It is like the time of day where kids are going to school and I have to stop traffic to go into the street and it's like eight cars deep on one side, three or four cars deep on the other to go into the street and pick up this dog. And I have to take it and then be like, all right, I don't know what I'm gonna do with it. Luckily, there was a person in the second car in the traffic that I stopped for this dog, so this dog didn't die, who looked at me and had his like probably elementary school aged daughter in the front seat. The guy looks at me, sees that I am just not in any sort of shape to be able to take care of this animal, and says, let me take the dog. And I had this moment of, should I give this dog away? Would that be bad? But then I thought to myself, you know what? This guy has the same exact amount of information that I do. And then he sells me by saying, I work at home all day. I can take care of it. The dog, the dog like had no problem going into to, to this car. It was, it was perfectly fine with that. So I'm like, all right, fine. So I basically passed the problem off. And some people are going to say, well, why didn't you call the shelter? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? We're like 20 minutes in and the owner still hasn't called me back. Update, the owner never called me back. And it was a number from Chattanooga. If somebody left me a message on my voicemail saying that they had found my dog, I'd call that person back, even if it was somehow relayed that it got into the hands of, of someone else. Anyways, I hope Lucy's doing well. I think Lucy's doing well. But that was my way of saying, I don't know why that situation made me realize, oh crap, having a pet as an adult is a totally different set of circumstances and it takes on a different type of responsibility, and dogs are like that. If, it's, if that's a cat on the middle of the street, I'm like, the cat's gonna be fine. Mm-hmm. The cat's probably gonna find its way home, no big deal, and I'm not really worried about that. I don't know why, dogs are different in that regard. So, that leads us to today's subject in figuring it out. Owning pets as an adult, and some of the responsibility that comes with it, because as I've said before, and anybody that's ever seen my Zoom background, which you have so graciously contributed to, via the illustration of myself and our cat, Rudy, who you know was some, somebody that my wife got when basically when she graduated college. I was never a cat guy growing up, always had, always, had dog, always had a dog. And then she got Rudy and I was like, you know, not a fan of cats going into it. And then I quickly realized, wait a minute, this, this guy is low maintenance. He is not prissy. He is friendly to everyone. And he's just a, an all around good pet. And he is so easy to be able to take care of and all of that. So Will, my perspective has definitely changed. Where like, I love dogs. And by the way, why does, why does it always have to be like, if you are a dog person, you can't have, like you, you don't like cats. But cat people always like dogs as well. And I, I don't consider myself either one now because like, I'm, I'm fine, I'm perfectly fine with cats. Some are meaner than others. Yeah, just like dogs. But why is it that there's like this 
divide with dog and cat people? Because is it just because like it, it portrays like a different type of personality or, or like I, I don't, I've never really understood that. No, I think I think you nailed that. It's like a, a reflection of yourself, and it's one of these things where it like started off as a joke, but now people are so dug in that they just can't give it up. It's weird. It's weird. But we took to the Facebook group to be able to figure out how perspective on owning pets changes as you become older, as you become an adult. Matthew Cedro, I relate a lot to this. He says, I've always been a big dog person. I grew up around dogs my whole life, but my immediate family never owned any pets until I was in college and they got their first dog. Once I started medical school, my fiance and I moved away from our home and she wanted to get a dog. I know the effort of taking care of a dog and didn't want to worry about that with all the stress that medical school brings. So we ended up compromising on a cat. It was honestly one of the best decisions we've made. Our cat is very low maintenance and he still brings all the benefits of owning a pet. I highly recommend cats for anyone who is owning their first pet and has a very busy schedule. But later in life, I absolutely want to be around dogs again. Again, cannot relate anymore to that. That is like 100% my realization and the ability to go on vacation and not worry about a cat in the same way that you have to worry about a dog. Like you have to board a dog every single time. Whereas with a cat, I mean, you know this, Will, you just have, have like one of your neighbors come by or like, if, you know, a friend who lives within 10 minutes, feed them once a day, scoop the litter box every few days. And I was like, all right, no big deal. Um, I didn't realize that before the whole um, having a cat thing, but I would love to be able to own a dog one day. I've made it no secret. You know, I want to own a bulldog and I aspire to. And one day I will, one day, eventually. Michael Dark, he says, I love other people's dogs, but having three kids and a dog is a lot of responsibility. Everyone knows kids are expensive, but dogs are sneaky expensive. If we want to go on a family vacation, we have to account for a few hundred dollars to kennel the dog since we don't have any family nearby. Our current dog will be our last. Oh, that's sad. Unless we can get an English bulldog. There we go. I'd have no problem spending all my money on a pet as perfect as Ugga. Preaching to the choir, Michael. Preaching mm-hmm. to the choir. The, the, the bulldog discussion has been had many a time in this household, and we always end up feeling bad for all the medical issues that they have to go through. I have a cousin who had one, and they had to put it down early, and it's really sad. And I, I get it, um, but man, to be able to look at you know a bulldog every single day, that, that to me would just be the peak of my pet owning. Eventually, eventually we'll get there. Let me, let me ask you a question real quick. So one of the things, that, like you said, that we connected over was we both have chonky cats uh, with human names. Yours is Rudy. Mine is Walter. He is screaming just incessantly right now. Um, but so we, what do you think about this from an adult perspective? So obviously, like, you know, one thing is you get a family dog or a family cat. But then if you're single or if you're married or if you're with someone, you know, and you guys break up, heaven forbid, how do you determine who gets custody of the animal? Whoever fills out the paperwork that first day. Really? That's what I think it should be. Okay. I, yeah. If you're the person there that is, you know, if you're adopting or however you're acquiring your pet, if you're the one who is filling out the paperwork, which is, that's a real thing. That's a line in the same moment. Okay. Then I think that that would, that would have to go to you, right? I mean, you can't, you can't make that decision when a pet is two or three years old. You can't do. You can't even do that based on who the pet likes more, unless it's a unanimous decision right. of 
one person doesn't want the pet and the other does, and the person who doesn't want the pet is the one who filled out the paperwork, but that's, I would hate to have to decide that. That, that just made me sad. Well, so I'm stupid, and I've fallen for the take my girlfriend to the animal shelter thing twice. So both times I walked mm. out with a cat. The first time was this cat named Rev, got him with my ex-girlfriend, and I just let her have him because she was you know, going through it after a breakup. I was like, hey, you can take Rev, that's fine. Walter, I got with another ex-girlfriend. I was the one who filled out the paperwork, so I kept Walter. But we, me and Brittany, will be getting a bulldog. We've discussed this. Brittany has... Ooh. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I don't even think we've talked about this, but, you know, yeah. Brittany has her dog, Betty, who little blind poodle. I have my chunky cat, Walter. And we've, like, had that discussion. And it's like, you know, years down the road, especially if we have kids and stuff, we're, we're going to, you know, jointly adopt a bulldog. But then that got me thinking. It's like, damn, bro, like, you can't really divide a bulldog. So, like, you got to make that decision. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's frowned upon. Can't be doing that. Can't be riding <laughs> bulldogs. Although I, I don't know which half would, would be better. I <laughs> I haven't had to cross that road, but I've wondered about it with the fraternity dog. I remember that was a big deal back in college of who gets who gets the dog. And it's definitely the one who filled out the paperwork and buys the medication and has to deal with all of that because that is not an easy thing to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But man. If you're going in there with the approach of we're never breaking up and this pet's going to be fine and you're doing the joint thing, you have to, you have to make that decision right then and there. Yep. You have to. Have to be able to do that. Nick Ruark, he says, he's got a dog person here, dogs greater than sign cats for sure. As far as too, as far as too many, it depends on how much space you have in your home. He's talking about too many pets. I have four pets and it feels like a lot at times, especially with vet costs. He's got two cats and two dogs. Hmm. So he's not technically, I guess, the what we talked about there where if you're a dog person, you just automatically hate cats. Four pets is a ton of responsibility. Mm-hmm. You almost at that point have to make the decision we're going to be a pet family mm-hmm. and it's not just going to be we're going to have the pets now and then we'll add the kids later. If you have that many pets, you got enough chaos in your life. At least that's that's how I look at it. If we're if we we're going to get to the point where we're deciding between kids or another pet, we would probably have to go with one or the other. I wouldn't want to keep adding on to that. And some people do and they get away with it. They handle chaos better than I do, whereas I just see a dog on the side of the road and freak out and the next 30 minutes of my life are just this confusing mess but and then the dogs um, walk in you boom and then the dogs walk in me so more power to you if you can do that um but man mixing dogs and cats is always a dangerous game too we have one of our friends over here it's actually my, my wife's boss who we see their dog twice a week at least and it's the best type of like you know how you say you know, don't own a boat, have a friend who owns a boat, right. have a friend who owns a boat. I kind of feel that way with their dog because I get to see it all the time. Also named Lucy, ironically enough, weird, um, different Lucy, but I get to see it and have those benefits all the time. Lucy's a great, great dog, I get to run around with it. We experimented by bringing Lucy over to our house and seeing how our cat Rudy would interact with Lucy. And it was weird, it was really weird because Rudy like hit under the table and I usually think that he's an alpha dude's a straight-up beta He was a straight-up beta <laughs> that day Lucy dictated the tempo and everything but they, they like they got along it was fine But you could definitely tell Ru- Rudy was on his heels and in his own home on his own turf Which 
as you know with cats, they take that seriously. They don't mess mm -hmm. around with that. So, yeah. Um, but I think the, the question of pets as you become older, I, everybody kind of has that fantasy pet when you're younger and then maybe you get to high school and you realize you're probably not gonna own that snake. You're probably not gonna buy that barracuda and stick it in your house. But I love having I love having a pet because it just kind of it's a way to kind of break things up and I think it's it's something that, that I look forward to and you know you come to appreciate. Pets provide joy and I think we all need that to a certain extent, especially in a year like we've had. I mean, goodness gracious, pets are Pets are the real MVP, in my opinion. The thing that's scary for me, man, is like, so Brittany grew up on a horse farm, and they were like those animal people that always had like a billion, billion different animals. I'm just waiting on the day where she brings home a boa constrictor. Like, it's going to happen. And like, I think her small dog is the only thing keeping her from doing that, because I know she's the type of person that would see an animal in traffic and be like, but we can fit a deer in our budget. Yep. I've already thought yep. about it. And it's like, no, we don't need a deer. Too late, I've already named him. <laughs> My mother-in-law, same exact thing. If there is a if there is an animal on the side of the road, that animal is coming back. And I'm grateful for those people because they save the people like me who just do not know what to do with stray stray animals. So very grateful for that. Thank you to everybody who responded to our Facebook question. Thank you to everyone who has already subscribed to the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you haven't yet, also go subscribe to the newest podcast from Saturday Down South, College Football Uncensored. Go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have not yet, follow us on all forms of social media. If you're just looking like to kill an afternoon, just go to SaturdayDownSouth.com because we have everything covered right now. There is no shortage of college sports coverage right now, despite the fact that the NCAA tournament is over. Baseball, basketball, the transfer portal's nuts in college basketball right now. We're on top of all of that. Michael Bratton does such a great job with our news team. And as I always say, Adam Spencer does a great job with the basketball stuff as well. So, so, so much coming down the pipeline. Spring football getting into full swing and really, really soon here. We're going to be like talking just about nonstop spring games here. So, uh, got a little bit of a different interview for next week. So, look out for that. And if you have not, join the Facebook group. Hear your name. Don't figure it out. Do it. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.